You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui Wallace. And a warm welcome to all our listeners. You're tuning into Cloud9. Uh, you're joining a series, a four-part series dedicated to an exploration on the social and spiritual implications of Confederate and colonial monuments here in North America and around the world. Today, we're joined by Dr. Laylee Mapayan. A warm welcome to Cloud9, Laylee. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Now, just to recap, uh, so far in this series, we've had one episode, the first episode being with Dr. Derek Smith, uh, who we invited to talk about the historical context uh, surrounding Confederate monuments in America. Uh, together, we explored the elements of truth behind the current issues at hand, reconciling unconditional love over hate and America's spiritual destiny to influence the world. We also talked about what this means for the future of memorialization and the role the individuals, communities, and institutions have to navigate the conversation surrounding these monuments. Now, Laylee, could you start by telling us a bit about yourself in particular, your educational background and research that might be relevant to this conversation regarding monuments and memorialization? Sure. Um, right now, I'm the executive director of the Wellesley Centers for Women, and um, I went to Spelman College for as an undergraduate, which is a historically black college and university for women in Atlanta. And from there, I went to graduate school in developmental psychology, getting my master's at Penn State and my PhD from Temple University. Um, and during that time, I, I evolved a research interest in how social identities develop, particularly in young people, and how the social context relates to how identities develop and how people's identities in turn shape the social context. Over time, um, you know, I became specifically interested in racial identity, gender identity, um, spiritual identities, and things of that nature. And eventually, I landed into some work around womanism, which is um, a perspective on social change that has been evolved um, by Africana women and other women of color based on African and indigenous cosmologies. And I've been writing on that subject um, for quite a while now. I actually just finished my third book on that subject, which is um, soon to be published. Congratulations. And if I'm not mistaken, that was called Womanism Rising. Yeah, Womanism Rising. Mm -hmm. Right. Awesome. You've also published two other groundbreaking books on womanism, The Womanist Reader and The Womanist Idea. Well, it's such a tremendous honor to have you as a guest on our show to talk about the implications of these Confederate and colonial monuments on Black communities and the psyche of people of African descent in America. So let's start there. As a psychologist and professor in Africana studies, what do these monuments represent to people of African descent in America? And what do you believe have been the psychological effects of these monuments to date since their inception? That's a great question, and I appreciate you for asking it. I think that for most Black people and for many other people of color as well, Confederate and colonial monuments are basically reminders of violence. 
you know, they're reminders of individual violence that may have happened in people's own family trees. They're reminders of a system of violence, namely uh, slavery and colonialism that placed uh, people of African descent in bondage for the economic gain of others and the economic decimation of, of Black people. Um, they're reminders of every single way that Black people have been dehumanized in the current world system. You know, so they aren't um, innocent statues for uh, people of African descent, nor are they statues that inspire any kind of admiration or inspire, you know, any kind of aspiration. They are simply reminders of violence and reminders of a system that is has tried for hundreds of years to keep black people down. I just want to come back to why we're having this conversation on Cloud9, which is generally an arts-based podcast and conversation about the intersection between art and spirituality. But I really think through this conversation, um, and Laylee, so I'm so grateful to have you here to help us navigate this conversation. Uh, a very challenging but very important one at this juncture um, with your experience and um, your knowledge in in psychology. It's important to recognize the impact that art can have on an individual, on a population, on a community, um, not just on the psychology but on the anatomy of 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 people. Um, and, and also the power that the art has to transform lives for the better or, in this case, for the worst. Um, so I think it, it was just important to bring that up and mention it. And hopefully through this conversation with Laylee and the series um, on, on Confederate and colonial monuments, we'll be able to really recognize um, the impact of, of these forms of memorialization and also how we can transform them and uplift them um, and take them to another level and contribute to a, a bigger conversation that's being had around the world. Um, so I just I just wanted, I felt it was important to reiterate that because um, some of you who've been listening to Cloud9 may be wondering, why is she talking about psychology when this is an arts podcast? But um, with Lele's help, I'm, I'm really glad and hopeful that we can take uh, Cloud9 to another level um, to really think about and reflect on uh, what the Baha'i writings even talks about, the impact of, of art and music and um, on uplifting uh, the soul and bringing it closer to the creator. So the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, in a book that he wrote called The Hidden Words, which is essentially the, the, the central tenets and teachings of the Baha'i faith, wrote that the best beloved of all things in my sight is justice. Turn not away therefrom, if thou desirest me, and neglect it not, that I may confide in thee. By its aid, thou shalt see with thine own eyes, and not through the eyes of others, and shalt know of thine own knowledge, and not through the knowledge of thy neighbor. Now, how do these monuments suppress our ability to work towards justice? You know, one of the things that I've been thinking really deeply about in recent months and years, particularly as the Black Lives Matter movement has evolved and really become the dominant racial justice movement in the United States, if not the world, is how important it is for us to recognize that part of the racial justice equation is to recover and make visible um, to all populations 
the the African worldview um, and how there are so many gifts for humanity that are latent in that. You know, one of the tragedies, particularly of colonialism, but also of um, slavery, is that it, in addition to, you know, trying to to overwrite black bodies, it also sought to overwrite black culture and and black metaphysics, you know, African metaphysics, you know, it, so solving racism isn't just about getting everybody to fit in, in the dominant Western worldview. It's also about a kind of metaphysical democracy. You know, it's also about recognizing that cultures who have been oppressed are cultures uh, that have their own entire way of understanding reality, their own entire way of understanding, um, you know, how to make change in the world. They have their own problem-solving methodologies that are not even cognizable in, in other world. You know, so there's this whole piece of the work that I've been trying to do as a scholar and as an activist to lift up African worldview. I mean, of course, people of African descent are already operating in African worldview, generally speaking, but the wider society often seems like it's moving in this process where everybody's just supposed to fit into the dominant Western worldview and that, you know, racial justice is only about making sure people of all colors fit into that. But I want to kind of push back a little bit because I don't think we can have a well-functioning world society unless multiple worldviews are recognized, acknowledged, and put into this kind of library for all humanity to learn from and to draw from as we grow together in this ever-advancing civilization. So that's, you know, something that I care deeply about. Um, it's something that, you know, I try to bring up in my own writing and speaking. And I, you know, it's just something that I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to raise a discourse about and I also just want to share another one of my favorite quotes from Baha'u'llah, which comes from Prayers and Meditations, because it relates to an understanding about being a member of an oppressed group, but overcoming because you know who you are, and you know that spirituality is at the heart of your true identity. He says, these are thy servants whom the ascendancy of the oppressor hath failed to deter, from fixing their eyes on the tabernacle of thy majesty, and whom the hosts of tyranny have been powerless to affright and divert their gaze from the dayspring of thy signs and the dawning place of thy testimonies. I love that quote because often I feel like people only understand racism in terms of the damage that it does to black people, but they don't understand that black people also have this very strong, powerful, spiritual identity that is carrying them through all of this nonsense, and that, you know, we are standing strong, even with these assaults, and that, you know, that that we can't be deterred. And so, you know, I feel like Baha'u'llah really understood that. And sometimes when I pray that prayer, I feel him walking beside all of us. And I love that. Wow, I feel so elated by that. It's such a profound feeling. Earlier, you'd mentioned this idea of an African worldview. Mm -hmm. I was just hoping before we continue with our conversation, if you could just share a little bit more about these gifts, which you mentioned that it brings to the conversation surrounding justice. Okay. Um, you know, worldview is um, 
you know, some people call it like the philosophy or the ethos of a culture. It is the set of deep understandings that you have about how reality is set up. What is the origin of creation? How do things fit together? I'll give an example. Um, you know, in the African worldview, there's an understanding that reality is comprised of a human element, a spiritual dimension, and a nature or environmental element like animals and plants and that sort of thing. Um, and all three of those domains are always interconnected and always interacting and um, in very real personal ways. Whereas, you know, the dominant Western worldview is primarily materialistic. It doesn't focus much on a spiritual realm, or if it acknowledges it, it views it as being something apart that we can't really access. And so if mm -hmm. you think, for example, that you can only solve problems in the material realm and you can't access or use anything from the spiritual realm, you'll do it differently than if you believe that you have the spiritual realm, the human realm, and the you know, nature realm to work with. You know, you'll just understand what's possible and you'll understand what to do differently. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, there are just many examples of cultures around the world who have different understandings about how reality is set up, what the relationships of humans are. For example, another example, in the African worldview, the basic understanding about the relationship among human beings is one of kinship. Whereas in the Western dominant view, the primary view is individualism and competition. So you're going to do things differently if you understand that you're always working with human beings who have selfish competitive notions versus human beings who are naturally affiliative and are already organized in extensive kinship groups. I mean, in fact, in the African worldview, the notion is that people exist in ever expanding circles of kinship. So it starts with, you know, the dyad of husband and wife or mother and child, and it expands outward to family, to household, the community, mm -hmm. to tribe, to clan, to nation, to all humanity, to all cosmos. You know, if that's your understanding of the social landscape, you're going to behave and solve problems differently mm -hmm. than if you think it's survival of the fittest. You know, so that's the level of worldview. It's like, how do you understand reality to be set up? How do you understand human nature? How do you understand the space in which we live and move and think, and what are the implications of that? It's a very deep level of understanding. Often we don't question it because most of us grow up in a single worldview and we you know, grow up in a single language community in which those two things are packaged together very neatly. But once you begin to deeply understand other cultures and other parts of the world and history, you realize that worldview is in fact something that varies from place to place and across time. And when you access that, you get all kinds of new information about how to do things. Now, um, I'm curious about these these colonial and Confederate monuments and the awareness of children to the history behind them. I personally grew up in Australia in a colonial country where there were many, many monuments dedicated to Captain Cook, who quote unquote discovered Australia. So I'm curious about what age children begin to develop this awareness of racism and oppressive undertones or blatant representations of racism that exist within these monuments. And these monuments exist in schools, outside of public buildings, public spaces, parks, universities, um, mm -hmm. you know, street names and neighborhoods are named after these Confederate um, uh, colonels mm -hmm. and individuals. Mm -hmm. 
When does this awareness begin and how does it affect the development of a child? Well, I think this awareness comes in stages. First, let me say that children's awareness of race and other social categories begins to emerge almost as soon as they begin learning language. You know, if they're learning English, there's a lot of coding for race and other social categories like gender built in. And when kids are learning the language, and we're talking about 18 months, two years, maybe the toddler years of two and three, they're already beginning to have a sense about racial differences and race as a category in our society. And they're beginning to have emotional understandings about the valence of those categories, the sort of white is good, black is bad kind of valence, which they pick up largely from um, the media and from the visual culture and the verbal culture or linguistic culture of the United States. Um, so that's one piece of what they're learning. Now, oftentimes the family context plays a mediating role because parents and other family members are always interpreting racial messaging to their kids and often trying to substitute a positive uh, image about blackness and black culture and black people for their small children, because the parents are preemptively aware that these negative racial messages are going to come at their kids and they're going to try to do what psychologists call armoring. They want to armor their kids so that the negative messages won't affect them or will have a less negative effect. So kids are already, most times from a very young age, beginning to get dual messages about race. One message that society says blackness is bad and another message that says, but I'm black and I'm good. So you know, that kind of awareness begins very early. And depending on the specific inputs that a kid gets, for example, what kind of neighborhood they grow up in, what kind of school they go to, the degree to which their relatives actually emphasize race or not, um, you know, the degree to which they're embedded in a black community or, or a racially inclusive um, community, you know, those sorts of things influence how it evolves. But with children, there is a particular kind of regular trajectory that you can observe. And that is that when kids are between three to five years old, or sometimes maybe three up to about seven, they're very much cognitively trying to get a sense of the landscape of their culture. And they often um, seem to embrace whatever the culture normalizes. So even more than what their parents may normalize, they tend to hone in on what the culture is doing and and seem to think that that's normal and that's what they should embrace. And that can be a time when parents get worried or confused because they hear their kids saying things that make them feel like, oh, they're maybe developing racially negative attitudes. But generally, if the parents are giving inputs during that period, the kids still come back around later and embrace themselves and their culture fully. So it can be tricky if you're not a psychologist to really understand what's going on. But the bottom line is those family, parental, and other community inputs are so essential to helping counter um, racist ideas in the larger culture from affecting kids as they grow up. And you talked about these inputs, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm sure there are effects, like generational effects of these inputs when the wider society is informing that. How does it, how does it look over generations upon generations of um, this, this lived experience? Yeah, that's an interesting question as well, because there are both positive and negative intergenerational impacts. One example would be the intergenerational impact 
of colorism. You know, the black community still struggles with attitudes about colorism, which means that even among black people within the black community, there is a privileging of lighter skinned people over darker skinned people based on the racist valuation of white people's light skin over black people's dark skin. So it's though it's reproduced within the community. And even though that's shifting some, that still can be found um, by many people, even if they don't talk about it, there's an emotional kind of a implicit bias or a snap reaction that light is better than dark. Um, and that's intergenerational in the sense that it, it has come up across generations of lighter skinned people being rewarded um, in ways that darker skinned people weren't or darker skinned people receiving you know, forms of violence that are different from or more severe than light skinned people. So that's one example. But there are also positive examples you know, of intergenerational um, attitudes carrying the community, such as attitudes that relate to, um, you know, black spirituality and, and religious practice, holding the community together, um, connections to Africa, um, you know, various kinds of awareness of sort of heroes and sheroes of the um, African-American community that people turn to um, for inspiration. You know, so there, there are, are a lot of different ways to look at it. You know, the bottom line with everything racial is that there's a good side and there's a bad side, and they're both always running in parallel. And it kind of depends on which one gets more attention hmm. um, in terms of how things turn out. Right. Would you say that these monuments have, in sort of a way, contributed to this um, idea of constructive resilience within the Black community in the United States? Yeah. One form of constructive resilience is being able to walk by those monuments every day and still survive because that's a psychological assault that you have to endure every single day. But if you can go about your day and still be a positive person and still contribute to humanity and still love yourself, despite having to witness that reminder of violence every single day, that's a form of constructive resilience. So these Confederate monuments predominantly feature white, middle-aged, able-bodied men. They look mm -hmm. very important because they're often wearing a suit or a uniform, riding a horse in some cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what does this tell women? What does it tell girls, people of different ethnic and cultural groups or minorities, indigenous people and people who are differently abled? What does it tell them? Yeah. Um, you know, that's such a great question about how our visual culture communicates to us about the worth of different people obviously those monuments convey one thing that you know white men are the leaders and heroes of our culture and that able-bodied middle-aged white men you know who did particular things um, often things which were harmful to others but which are upheld and celebrated by other white men and you know so on um, that those are the the valuable people but a more pernicious kind of uh, dimension of this is that it doesn't just tell us who the leaders and heroes are. It also tells us who can be considered normal, a normal human. And what these kinds of things do is they communicate the idea that white men are normal humans and everybody else is a variation on that, whether a lesser variation or just somebody who's different. Um, are these kind of monuments cement the idea that white men are normal people and everybody else is somehow, you know, deviant from that. 
And what does this tell other white men? <laughs> and I'm just... <laughs> you know, yeah, no, that's an important question because it tells them that greatness is their birthright. Mm -hmm. It tells them that being a leader and being a hero is what they should expect of themselves, mm -hmm. you know, and that, um, you know, if they emulate these guys, they'll get there. You know, there's a lot of identity and a lot of ego tied up in this notion that for a white man, it's a natural pathway to things going well in your life. You know, and I think that the reason that some white men really struggle in these challenging times is because that pathway is being interrupted by other people also uh, understanding that they have a birthright to, uh, you know, to that as well. I mean, it reminds me of one of the Baha'i hidden words where Baha'u'llah says, noble have I created thee, yet thou hast abased by thyself, rise then unto that for which thou wast created. I mean, this idea is that, you know, in the past, these monuments conveyed that only white, able-bodied men are noble. Everybody else is beneath them. Um, but now, you know, uh, as a result of, of justice movements and, you know, social, social justice movements, everybody knows they're noble. Everybody knows that they should rise unto that for which they were created. And so white men are getting some competition that they're not used <laughs> to having, and they don't like it that much. Yeah. You know, and in fact, I would say that a lot of the the uh, really challenging backlash that we're seeing in society right now has to do with this narrative getting interrupted for white men who don't know what to do with themselves when they don't have a clear pathway to that kind of endpoint. Now, on this issue, Laylee, as a psychologist, what are some constructive ways that we can engage in a conversation with people that may think differently to us surrounding, say, this contentious issue around monuments. Could you share some insight? I think that you have to start by, first of all, talking about something other than monuments. You don't start with monuments. Mm -hmm. That's rule number one. Um, and after you've built up some trust and connection, then you also start by talking about how the monuments affect you. And you do it in a way that seeks to build the natural human connection that comes from storytelling. You know, if I say, you know, when I was a kid, I had to go to a high school named after somebody that enslaved my grandparents and mm. wouldn't have really wanted me to even get a good education and to have to do that every day kind of, you know, put a thorn in my my being, you know, and say, you know, can you see it from my perspective? You know, just like, and, and I, and I could acknowledge, I could say, you know, I, I understand why you feel really proud about the accomplishments of your forebears. And we all get excited when our, our, you know, our grandparent generated, whatever, our ancestors did something important. And that's a natural human feeling but we have to be able to see it from both sides and it's say, you know, I'm sure that, you know, these people did some, you know, good things, but they also mm. did something that was very hurtful to a large swath of people, including me. And, you know, as your friend, associate, coworker, neighbor, whatever, you know, I want us to be connected, but I, you know, to be authentic, I need to let you know that this part of it was really bad for me. And so mm. I just, you know, I want to put that in front of you and see what you say. So using that skill of, of storytelling and also empathy. 
Yeah, storytelling, empathy, and always trying to look for a point of connection, you know, mm -hmm. because even, you know, the people who are the most racist and the least racist all want their kids to succeed. You know, mm -hmm. everybody wants their family to have enough to eat. Everybody wants their kid to get a good ex uh, education. Everybody is trying to make it in this world one way or the other as they see it fit. And granted, we have different ideas about what that success looks like or what some of those aims are. But the most basic aspects of our humanness are still fundamentally the same. And we can't forget that. I know it's hard. I know it's a controversial opinion because we're in an era when a lot of people say, don't mm -hmm. say anything good about somebody that's out to get you. But the reality is people can be called back. You know, and it's one of the things I love about the National Center for Race Amity because they have this whole series on these really powerful cross-racial friendships between people who, by all appearances, would have been on the opposite sides of the fence, but mm. who ultimately had an amazing friendship. And the most amazing one was between Zernona Clayton, who was a black woman, and one of the grand wizards of the KKK. And they were forced together in a work situation but ultimately, through mechanisms of friendship, she persuaded him to renounce the clan and leave it, you know, and their friendship lasted a lifetime. So, you know, those examples don't negate the horribleness of racism and all of the terrible, violent, racist things that are happen happening or have happened, but they help us see some methods for making progress. Mm. They help us see another way besides just being in opposition, you know, because being in opposition is just going to reproduce opposition. It's not going to ultimately get us to peace, unity, dignity, and those things. So we have to, you know, we have to carefully consider our methods and the means ends problem. And we have to uh, allow ourselves to learn, grow, experiment, you know, as the Baha'i Faith teaches, you know, that we got to uh, have a humble posture of learning. We have to try things and see how they work and that we can't expect instant results all the time. And that we have to remember that our spiritual identity is first and foremost, you know, and we also have to protect those or help those who have uh, been subjected to violence or the threat of violence. I mean, that's mm. part of it too. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm suggesting that, you know, we should just take it lying down. You know, we shouldn't. But but we also can't afford to get caught up in the opposition game because it leads nowhere. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing your insights. I want to I want to talk about representation, which is slight segue from where we've come from. My understanding is that monuments mm -hmm. were intended to inspire and provoke deep reflection, remind the audience of their journey, loss or highlight a certain aspect or event in history mm -hmm. that they want to memorialize. Mm -hmm. The monuments in question, mm -hmm. these Confederate and colonial monuments, were designed to inspire a very specific population, as we've just spoken about. And the popular way to do this at the time was through the representation of key individual figures in history and represent them as these god-like characters. So in contrast to mm -hmm. this, the Universal House of Justice, the supreme body of the Baha'i faith, reiterated in a message dated December 1977 that the prohibition on representing the manifestation of God in paintings and drawings or in dramatic presentations applies to all the manifestations of God. 
There are, of course, great and wonderful works of art of past dispensations, many of which portrayed Mm -hmm. the manifestation of God in a spirit of reverence and love. In this dispensation, however, the greater maturity of mankind and the greater awareness of the relationship between the supreme manifestation and his servants enable us to realize the impossibility of representing in any human form, whether pictorially, in sculpture, or in dramatic representation, the person of God's manifestation. In stating the Baha'i prohibition, the Guardian pointed out this impossibility. Now, I just love this quote because it's so clear and it speaks so much to the reasons why there is so much fragmentation surrounding these monuments in wider society. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear your perspective. How may representation of an individual limit our perception and contribute to division? And how does the Baha'i injunction broaden our perception and contribute to unity, maybe as artists or also as a worldwide community? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, the Baha'i faith really emphasizes the development of virtue and human excellence in all people of every background and emphasizes that in a context of all cultures and peoples having something to contribute to the evolving global culture and to the oneness of humankind. So, you know, when you fix an idea about virtue in a monument that is designed after an individual human being, then you're already creating a barrier in the form of suggestion that this is the kind of person that can hold that virtue and maybe other people can't. So it would be very important to us in the faith to not communicate that, but rather to communicate that the road to the development of human excellence and virtue is open to all, and that each of us might have a unique unique way of embodying that. You know, it reminds me of another one of the hidden words where it says, O children of men, know ye not why we created you all from the same dust, that no one should exalt himself over the other. And it says, ponder at all times in your hearts how you were created. You know, this is an idea that there that we should be striving for equality and unity. And even with all of the different kinds of human difference, which are very variable, very valued in all different kinds of reflections of the names and attributes of God, It's important that we don't attempt to fix those in ways that might cause any person to feel like they can't embody or approach that virtue. So it's a whole different idea about monuments. You know, there are monuments that get us to that remind us of um, or allow us to experience the sacredness of certain holy figures, um, but they aren't depictions of their physical body. There are other kinds of structures that evoke awe and reverence through beauty, you know, through elegance, Mm -hmm. through um, nature and and things that inspire everyone. Now, I want to dive a little deeper into the role that the Baha'i faith has played in your life. You're a woman of color, of mixed race. You were born in New York, but were raised in the South. 
What did the Baha'i faith offer you while you were growing up in such a divided society surrounded by these extremely oppressive reminders of a dark, violent, and traumatic history? You know, I have to say that the faith was really my saving grace because from an early age and because of the the Baha'i community life and the regular exposure to the writings, which embody such noble principles and such lofty ideas, I became aware of, you know, first of all, the notion of the unity of humankind. Second of all, the notion that we're all spiritual beings and that I, I came to understand my own identity as primarily spiritual, first and foremost, ahead of any of my physical attributes. I also came to understand that cultural diversity was something great, something to be appreciated. And I was able to, um, you know, bring forth that idea against the backdrop of the messages I was getting at school and in the media and from all kinds of name calling people in society you know, that the real reality is that, you know, the, the different cultures of my parentage were good and that our coming together was good. And so I always had a counter narrative. I guess that's the best way to put it. The faith always gave me a counter narrative um, for racism so that I didn't have to buy into or try to find a place within a narrative that was inherently toxic and dehumanizing, you know, so um, that was there. And then, of course, my parents, you know, had kind of an interesting story because they both became Baha'is in college and they met at a Baha'i event um, and they got married even before interracial marriage was legal in most of the states in the United States. They got married at the Baha'i Temple in Wilmette, Illinois, and they um, had their union sort of blessed and they were getting all kinds of, you know, good feedback for coming together interracially. And they had the example of Lewis and Louisa Gregory to fall back on in the explicit injunctions from Abdul Baha to promote interracial marriage. So they felt not only that they were getting married because they were in love with each other, but that they were also getting married because they were doing something good for humanity. They were advancing the unity of humankind by getting married, you know? And so I was born into that context. I was born into a family that was actively and consciously trying to advance the unity of humankind. So I always had to think about what is my place in that? What is my role? And the feeling that arose in me over time was that I was a bridge builder because I had a foot in each community. I could be a bridge builder and I could help bring the communities together and knit the hearts together and bring people of different races into a common uh, dialogue and a common conversation. So that, those were very strong um, impressions that came out of my early life. And even, you know, I can remember reading the advent of divine justice when I was in high school and, you know, paying close attention to the section on the most challenging issue and seeing a role for myself in that work, you know, and that was a very formative thought for myself at that age when, you know, this would have been in, in the 1970s or early 80s um, when the landscape of how America dealt with racial issues was very different. So it was very formative, very extremely formative. And I'm so thankful that I had the faith to offer this counter narrative. Hmm. I think that's really beautiful imagery to imagine knitting the hearts together um, and building racial unity 
by being this bridge. Um, I also just wanted to go back to, you mentioned a book called The Advent of Divine Justice, which was uh, written by Shoghi Effendi, the grandson of Abdu'l-Bahá, and is kind of a document for the American Baha'i community to work towards uh, racial, racial unity. Now, I'm curious about what you have learned in your experience that you can pass on to your own children. Well, I mean, we always have the writings to fall back on. And we also have the example, you know, I have, I have the example of my own attitudes um, that, you know, influence the way that I talk to my children about their own experiences. And their own experiences are playing out in a very different racial context, in a very different racial environment, both in negative and positive ways. So, you know, I think that, that um, those conversations in my family are one way that I bring that work forward. But I also bring it forward in my work as a college professor and as, you know, an academic, because I'm always teaching those concepts and writing and publishing about those concepts and lecturing about those concepts. And so I have opportunities to share these ideas and raise questions about these ideas with, you know, large numbers of people. Right. You've shared what a formative role the Baha'i faith has played in in your life growing up and today. How do the Baha'i teachings offer all of us a blueprint for how Mm -hmm. we can approach monuments or memorialization in future? Well, I think that, first of all, the Baha'i faith offers us a blueprint for thinking about justice and understanding that any of the kind of representations that we make should further justice within the human collective, you know, and so that's the first part of the blueprint. And the second part of the blueprint has to do with the fact that we can memorialize virtues and attributes of humans that we would like to inculcate society-wide. We don't need to elevate specific individuals, but rather, you know, we need to create the conditions for all individuals to become protagonists in a process of advancing civilization. I love this quote from Baha'u'llah who said that uh, that one indeed is a man who today dedicateth himself to the service of the entire human race. The great being saith, blessed and happy is he that ariseth to promote the best interests of the peoples and kindreds of the earth. And he goes on to say, it is not for him to pride himself who loveth his own country, but rather for him who loveth the whole world. So I think that that is the kind of blueprint that we're talking about. When we we make monuments, we have to be thinking about the bigger purpose that they're serving and think about what kinds of monuments help us advance great ideas and inspire entire populations to move in directions that are beneficial, particularly in the direction of justice Mm -hmm. for all humanity. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Laylee, what's next for you? Well, you know, um, I've continued to really try to think deeply about the connection between um, the Baha'i faith and African worldview and solving racial ju- racial injustice, you know, achieving racial justice, um, and what the insights from womanism are that can contribute to that. And I'm also very fascinated by the uniqueness of the Baha'i social change methodology, which I think in some respects is really flying under the radar with regard to um, the larger social justice movement around the world. Um, And so I want to do what I can as a scholar to elevate that, to really um, 
be a translator between Baha'i communities and literatures and academic and activist communities and literatures. And so I think that those projects will keep me busy yeah. for a while. Yeah, that's a lifetime's work, multiple lifetimes work. Um, Laylee, we've sadly come to the end of our conversation today, but one that I hope will continue uh, in the years to come. I just want to thank you so much, not only for your time today, but to your dedication to this conversation surrounding justice and race. And um, this conversation has been so insightful and uplifting and inspiring and really provided so much hope um, in, in our future as a human race. And so thank you so much again for your time today. And I really hope that you continue to be guided and supported in your efforts and in the years and decades to come. Well, thank you so much, Shadi. This has been a very enjoyable interview and I really look forward to the episode. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out Baha'iTeachings.org where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and articles. <laughs>